Okay, to Samuel. Chapter 7. And I will be reading from the NIV version. After the king, that's King David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over all my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people in Israel. And I will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestor, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielding by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Perfect. Well, let's pray. Dearly Father, uh, thank you for this opportunity that we have here at High Wickham uh, to meet together, uh, to sing um, songs of worship and praise to you, to learn about you from your word. Please be with us now. Help us to open our hearts to hear and understand what you have to say. Um, and please, Lord, uh, work through me that I may uh, explain it in uh, a way that brings honour and glory to you. And pray all this in your heavenly holy name. Amen. Well, um, as stated before, 
Uh, I study at Trinity Theological College, and my sermon today is part of one of my assignments that I need to submit uh, later this month. Um, and part of the assignment for Trinity, I am required to start my sermons with a catchy introduction uh, that hooks the attention of the audience, sets the tone for the rest of the sermon, and then lines up with a big applicable goal at the end. Uh, however, I do not have one. Uh, now, you might be thinking, okay, well, this is a pretty terrible way to start a sermon. But apart from the fact that my assessment score has now dropped automatically by 20 marks, I would argue that this is actually quite a good thing. Because the reason why I found it so hard to find a story that mirrors what is taught in 2 Samuel 7 is because what the, the claims made in this passage of the Bible are so incomparable. And if the claims are true, they have eternal massive consequences for all of us. So hopefully by the end of today, you'll be a bit more sympathetic with my lack of introduction. Well, look, if I can't offer you a catchy intro, uh, let me offer you a little bit of context as we are diving smack bang into the middle of 2 Samuel. For those who have never read uh, the book or haven't in a while, uh, Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel is a very fast-paced, action-packed book that follows mainly the life of King David. And on either side of chapter 7, uh, we have um, things such as his great conquests and his battles and the many uh, wars that he um, fights in, as well as <clears throat> uh, on the other side of chapter 7, uh, the struggles and the sin that he commits and the consequences of that. And in the middle of it all, in the middle of all these big ticket items, these major events, we have chapter 7, which slows right down and narrows in on David and the prophet Nathan and their interaction with God. Now, we could brush this off as a mere coincidence, this changing of pace. However, I believe that this would be selling the original authors of 2 Samuel short. Generally, when you intentionally slow down and change the pace of narrative, is because you want to um, specify the importance of the details here. You want to highlight the important of this, importance of this passage. And I believe that's what's going on here, that even before we see the contents of chapter 7, the author is indicating that this chapter is of extremely high importance. And that's where we begin uh, this morning, as we can see um, in verses 1 and 2. King David is experiencing a time of rest from the hostilities and the battles that he has been enduring. And it's at this time that he begins to contrast his, uh, his own residence with a tent that the ark of God dwells in saying that he lives in a house of cedar, which is a very expensive and luxurious uh, material, while God dwells in a mere tent among his people. David looks at the mansion he lives in and realises that there's something wrong with this picture. And as a result of this, David begins to desire to build God uh, a great house or a great temple so that God could dwell with his people in a more fitting manner. And we are then told that David goes and informs Nathan 
uh, who is the prophet of God, whose role it is to speak to the king on behalf of God. And Nathan replies to David, telling him to go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Nathan tells David that what he desires is good. See, very early on, the authors of 2 Samuel 7 want to establish that David here, despite the hard battles and despite the trials he's endured at this point in his life, still recognises that God is the one who is deserving of all the glory and praise. That is God who has made him king, who has given him this palace and has granted him all these many victories. And it's important to establish this because it will affect how we read uh, God's response in verses 5 to 7. When God says to the prophet Nathan regarding David, he says, uh, would he be the one who builds him a house? <clears throat> this could be taken as implying that God is rebuking David, that his desires are completely out of line and that is not and that he is not worthy to do such a thing. However, there is greater merit to read this as God acknowledging David's motivation for glorifying God as a good thing. The reason it should be read this way is because of the context of 1 1 Kings 8, uh, which says David uh, did well, sorry, that God said that David did well, that it was in his heart to build God a house. And further, as we've just read in, uh, chapter, uh, in verse 3, uh, Nathan, speaking uh, not as a result of directly consulting God, rather from his own wisdom as a prophet, has told David that it is a good thing what he desires. But what gives the best indication in 2 Samuel 7 that God is responding to David's desires favorably is verse 5. God calls David his own servant, which is something that we can very quickly gloss over. However, this title is only used nine times in the entire Bible. And up until this point, it has only been used once before, which was to Jacob, who would eventually be renamed uh, Israel in the book of Genesis, and from whom the nation of Israel would descend from. So we can see with this this use of language, this title, that this is not only referring to someone who has great favour with the Lord, but that God is leading into saying something of great importance. In verse 6 and 7, God then goes on to tell David that although his heart is in the right place and that what he desires is good, that God in his own time will choose a place to dwell amongst his people in a permanent fashion. And God explains to David that this time has not yet come. You see, David was right to acknowledge that God deserves the glory and not him. But David's building blueprint and his timing did not match up with God's. But instead of rebuking and distancing himself from David and Nathan, God stays true to his character and decides to reorientate their plans to be in line with his. God begins to reveal his perfect building plan, which brings us to verses 9 and 10. This is where God shifts towards making a covenant 
with David. Now, these two verses are vital in this section because it gives a lot of clarity that this is actually a covenant that God is making. Because the word covenant isn't actually used in this chapter at all. Which is quite odd, because usually when God makes a covenant, uh, he connects it uh, with a statement saying, this is my covenant with you, uh, or something along those lines. However, that is not here. But we do know that God is stating the terms of a new covenant with David because of the language that he uses. See, the covenant with David nearly mirrors the covenant God made with Abraham back in Genesis 12. However, it gives greater clarity and insight as to how God will fulfill these promises. Uh, feel welcome to turn back to chapter uh, Genesis 12, but you don't have to. I'll just refer to it for you. Uh, when making covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, God has promised Abram, who would become Abraham, that he would make his name great. And as we can see here, God also promises that David's name would be a great one. Secondly, God promises Abraham a great land. And here God says in verse 10 that he will give Israel an appointed place to dwell where they will be free of their enemies and afflictions. And finally, God, in Genesis 12, promises that through Abraham, all the people of the world would be blessed. But that's where the mirroring stops here in 2 Samuel 7. See, in verse 11, God doesn't use this type of terminology. Rather, he declares that instead of David building a house for God, God would build a house for David. God would build not a literal house, such as the one that David desired to build, but rather he would build David a dynasty that would be far greater than any temple that David or any other earthly king could create or construct. See, the Lord promises from verse 13 that this house would be the greatest dynasty of all time. This would be an everlasting kingdom and that David's descendants would rule forever and would be called a son of God. And again, this is another Old, Old Testament reference. God called the nation of Israel his son back in Exodus 22. And it was used as a collective term referring to the whole nation. But now, again, we see that through the line of David, God is specifically saying a true son of God would come and rule forever. See, God is showing and telling David that the covenant he made centuries ago with Abraham, uh, that included a promise of a land and a promise of descendants and a promise of a blessing and redemption will now be fulfilled through David's family line. And now that brings us to the question of, well, what does this mean? Has this happened? Who is this actually talking about? And as we go on reading later in the Old Testament, the books that follow uh, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, we can see that these promises are partially fulfilled in David's uh, direct son, Solomon. He goes on to be David's successor. He sits on the throne as a king of peace and builds the temple of the Lord. 
He then commits sin and falls away from God, but God does not remove his love for him, as he said he wouldn't in verse 15. But Solomon continually disobeys God in so many ways, and the temple that he builds is eventually plundered and burned even before two kings ends. And further, various other sons of David come along, but they too all die out and none of their reigns last very long. None of them fit the description of the everlasting ruler. So again, we're left asking, are these things fulfilled? And the answer is yes. See, God's building plan was never about bricks and mortar, as David and Solomon's were. Rather, it was a plan for a Messiah. The things that are promised in David, uh, to David here in 2 Samuel are ultimately and totally fulfilled through the person of Christ Jesus, who according to Romans 1.3 is not only a direct descendant of David, but also the one true Son of God, sent by God the Father, who humbled himself, taking on the form and image of a man. He came, lived, proclaimed, and although he did not commit iniquity, he instead became iniquity, taking on our sinfulness and died for us in humanity's place on the cross. He then rose again so that all who follow him find salvation and rest. See, God is telling David here that he will send a Messiah, the Son of God. And we know that that is now being achieved through Jesus Christ. And see, the problem that we so often face now is when reading Old Testament passages like 2 Samuel 7 that are written in the future tense, that is, they're talking about things that are yet to happen, we so very often forget where we are in history. We forget that these things have already been accomplished in the gospel, or even if we do see that these things are pointing to Christ, we do not dwell on the significance that the promises being fulfilled or have been fulfilled and what that means for us now. You see, the claims made here in the Davidic covenant are infinite claims. That is that they are constant and everlasting. And if this is the case, if they truly have been fulfilled, if we believe they have been fulfilled in Christ, then that means that this kingdom, this everlasting dynasty, this reign of Jesus is taking place now. And as a result, we should live our lives in accordance. But look, maybe you're a skeptic, right? It's a biased book, right? I'm Christian, of course, I'm going to tell you this is true, and that's fair, right? I hope I'm not offending anyone. That is, that's a fair, fair uh, question to ask. It's good to question things. Um, and it makes sense, especially in 2 Samuel 7, because it, it says that these words are directly from God. This is God uh, saying these things. The ultimate creator of the universe, the one who sustains all life and is in control of everything, so I don't think it's unreasonable to expect evidence of Christ's eternal reign to be all around us. So let me give you a little bit. There's actually many, but these two examples I selected 
uh, mainly because they're easy to show, uh, <laughs> but also because uh, there are about two aspects that unite humanity um, currently. So the first one is, if you were to, uh, you can do this if you want, you won't offend me, if you were to open your phone right now uh, and were to Google uh, something along the lines of who is the most important person of all time? Or who is the most significant person in history? Or if you want to get a little bit more detail, who is the most vital person in human history? Guess who comes up? Jesus Christ comes up. And you see, these aren't just articles from some biased Christian blogs. Okay, we're talking, talking Time magazine, we're talking The Guardian, we're talking news websites, independent articles, secular sites and companies. See, without even understanding why, the world cannot help but recognize Jesus' fulfillments of the Davidic covenant and his eternal reign. Another example is our calendars. Our calendars in which time, the, the global time, the time that the world follows, is based on Jesus Christ. It's 2022 this year, and that's 2022 Anno Domino, or AD, which means in the year of our Lord. See, just as he is promised to be the greatest blessing to humanity, the world can't help but recognise that Jesus Christ's life and work is the most significant and most history-altering actions ever. So then, what does this mean for all of us? How are we to respond to Christ's fulfilment of the Davidic covenant? Well, I think, although we haven't read it this morning, and I'll allow you to read this in your own time, from verse 18 onwards in this chapter here in Samuel, David is a great example, the way that he responds. He responds in thanksgiving and praising and worship and rejoicing to the Lord. And us too, as Christians, should be rejoicing. Because since the, near the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3, when through Adam the whole of humanity turned away from God, God promised a serpent crusher that would rise up and redeem humanity. And then, as we'd already stated, in Abraham, uh, with Abraham in Genesis 12, we learned that a redeeming blessing would come through his descendants. And now, in 2 Samuel 7, we learn that these things will come through uh, in David's uh, direct family line. And finally, we know that these have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as a result, Christ is now reigning and will continue to reign over all creation forever. Which means for those who are part of his people, we will be blessed. We will have a place uh, that we will be forever, where our enemies of sin, death, suffering and pain will no longer attack us. And that we too will carry a great name as Christians. Because of Christ, we too are also made great. And finally that we will truly dwell with him in his presence for all eternity as part of his everlasting kingdom. And as a result of knowing this, we too should be like David. We should align our plans with that of God, 
that we should live lives that bring honour and glory to him as the everlasting king. And if that is not you today, if you do not follow Christ, if you have not accepted him as Lord and Saviour of your life, well then, I warn you. Because just as God has promised salvation in uh, chapters like 2 Samuel 7, he has also promised to bring swift justice upon sin and unrighteousness and all those who commit it. And he must do this because of who he is, because of his holiness, he must deal with sin. So I ask you, if you see your need for saving, please repent from your sins, turn, put your trust and your life in Jesus, the promised Son of God, the ultimate Saviour and the everlasting King. Let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you that uh, we can see that you promised your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Old Testament, and that uh, this covenant has been fulfilled in him entirely. And thank you, Lord, that uh, through his life, death, and resurrection, we may have eternal life and spend eternity with you. Um, please allow us to live lives that bring honour and glory to you as a response to this good news. We pray all this in your heavenly holy name. Amen.